Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. They look for quality in their work and their daily lives. If your business cares about quality customers, look to MPB. Go to mpbonline.org underwriting for more information. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, January 3rd. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a new survey shows Mississippi businesses eager to hire qualified workers. Then our legislative profiles continue. This time, we're moving a bit off the beaten path. And in this week's book club, Let the People See takes a look at Emmett Till's murder from a new perspective. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi's low unemployment rate has some companies scrambling to hire qualified employees, according to a new survey by the Mississippi Secretary of State's office. But Secretary Delbert Hoseman says there's a disconnect. Businesses and educators aren't working together to train people for jobs. Hoseman tells our Desiree Frazier more about the survey. Our businesses, over 50 percent of the workforce is over uh, 45. And that... Um, is more in the corporate structure than it is in the limited liability company. The smaller companies have younger employees, and it varied about 10% there, but the average was over uh, over 50%. So what we want to do, uh, obviously, is have our younger workforce be incentivized to be working in Mississippi for credible wages and, and, and money that they, they can live on and prosper on. And so what it sounds like right now is younger people are leaving. Well, I don't know whether they're leaving or not. We'll, we'll do the census here, and we'll know. And it, most likely Mississippi will stay pretty close to where we are. We may have some small growth or not growth. But where, where we're lacking is in the labor participation rate. Now, we are at 55-point-something percent labor participation rate. Now, the country runs about 62 or 63 percent. So where, where we're lacking is we have about 2.2 million people that could be working, and we've got 45 percent of them that are not. Some of them are raising children at home. Some of them are disabled. Some of them are going to school. There's all kinds of reasons not to be there. But we need to focus, I think, on the ones that are not working so that our labor participation rate will get over 60 percent. When you talked about um, what work, what employers are looking for, you talked about getting to work on time, communication, but not so much having the skills base that they're looking for. Yeah, I was, uh, I'm not surprised because that's the second survey that showed this. I mean, we need to be paying attention. When you ask uh, what was the most important thing for them, technical skills were only 15%. The top three 
were communications, timeliness, and honesty. So uh, workers are telling you time and time again, if you show up for work and want to work with me and communicate with your fellow employee, we can train you up to do what we're going to do. But there's a gap, you said, between companies and education. What you see is that uh, businesses are saying the schools are not producing what we need. And some the schools are starting to react to that. And the schools are saying, well, you really never told us that. So what you're seeing is the meetings that I had in Lowndes County with uh, probably 50 different businesses in, in the Lowndes County School District that's starting a career technical institute. What, what do you need to teach there? Here's what I will do. If you'll teach them this, I'll hire, X, I'll hire this many of them. The same happened in Hattiesburg just a month and a half ago. Uh, where we had probably a hundred different businesses and high schools and community colleges in a room. This is what I need. This is what you should be teaching. This is where we can go- work together. That that is going to permeate Mississippi education for the next decade. What are we talking about in terms of salaries? Because that's been an issue for the state. How do we retain uh, qualified people, educated people, yeah. um, on lower salaries? Yeah, we the ones in Columbus, we ask them to come with what they would pay somebody. And it varied from twenty-five to forty thousand dollars to start, plus significant raises uh, within the first year. So Did that surprise you, or do you think that's still a little low? Oh, I think twenty-five thousand is too low. But somebody starting at thirty-five thousand who gets a raise to forty-eight thousand a year from now, you start you start to make some real money. And then, of course, uh, from there, your opportunities expand because then you've got the training and you've got the job skills and a resume. What type of businesses are we talking about? Everything. We had construction companies and florists. I mean, you, you, we had Toyota uh, robots. I mean, it's, it's, all, it's all Mississippi businesses. We had 5,800 businesses reply. We have about 100,000 LLCs and about 40,000 corporations. So it's a pretty little, strong certificate, uh, certification. Of- you talked about a shift uh, in employer thinking. Can you expound on that a little bit? Well, we're four percent unemployed, four point seven percent, I think, unemployment. The governor and, and our legislature done a great job. So now companies are are saying, well, you know, we can't find an employee. So where are we going to look? Well, they start looking now in high schools, which is very appropriate. Uh, they start looking in community colleges. What kind of programs do we need? Where can I find these workers to come to my business? Because I can't find anybody to work for me. So that's led them back to looking at schools and looking at the places they can find people to work for. And then that was why we did the one about how do you find people. Social, current employees, social networking is the most likely and some posting. There was another shift that you mentioned involving nonviolent felons. Mm-hmm. That's a quantum shift, I think, from where Mississippi was really probably 20 years ago. Um, you know, where the legislature came in and, and wanted maximum sentencing and, and there was a good bit of crime, and to address that crime, they were going to do that. Now we find uh, that 60% of Mississippi businesses would hire a nonviolent felon. Uh, that That is a direct wake-up to everybody. To do say. you think they just said that? Do you think they really mean it? Yeah. There's no money involved in this. I mean, why would they lie about it? <laughs> Three things have happened. One, they can't find employees. Now, if they can find uh, a nonviolent felon that had some economic issue or some minor drug conviction or whatever, they won't hire that person. If they'll come to work, they'll be honest and communicate with their people, they'll train them. It's as clear as that. They're looking for workforce. So that shift has come as we've gotten more employment. 
The second is the state as a whole is looking at the cost of containment and recidivism. We as a state, we the state, don't want them coming back. Well, the last thing we want them for is to reincarcerate them. So we're looking at ways to push them out with some type of skill that allows them to get back into uh, our communities and not come back. We don't want you back in the judicial system. So I think those two are working hand-in-hand hand to, sh- to cause this. Secretary Hoseman, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's great to start the new year on a positive note. It certainly is. Thanks. The All Business Survey is available at the Secretary of State's website. That's sos.ms.gov. Coming up, our legislative profiles continue. This time, we're moving a bit off the beaten path. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education with 100% online master's or specialist degrees in fields like teaching, leadership, higher education, and more. More information at rebelteacher.com. Can't get to a radio? Well, don't worry. MPB Think and Music Radio are available online and on our MPB public media app. It's simple. Just log on to our website at mpbonline.org to get started. This is MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The Mississippi legislature is gearing up for the 2019 session, which starts next week. Lawmakers will spend 12 weeks at the Capitol crafting new laws, revising old ones, and trying to find ways to work together or not. To make matters even more interesting, it's officially a statewide election year, meaning every legislative seat and each statewide elected office will be up for grabs. We're taking time this week before the political maneuvering of the session to learn more about the legislative process and how it works and how legislators approach their positions. We'll hear from both sides of the aisle with representatives from around the state. Today, we hear from Representative Bob Evans. The Democrat from Monticello tells us about his experience on the Judiciary A and Judiciary on Bank Committees, among others. Well, essentially, the role of a committee is is to take the bills that are assigned to each committee uh, by the speaker and to basically look at them, see if they're good bills, see if they're necessary, and decide whether or not to uh, vote to send them on for action on the floor of the House. You're also on the Banking and Financial Services Committee and the Education Committee, as well as others. Is it usual to serve on so many committees? You serve on whatever committees that the speaker assigns you to. You get better assignments, better in quotations, uh, the longer you're there, at least with the money committees, the money committees being appropriations and ways and means, neither of which I serve on at this point in time. You're also a Democrat, and the speaker is a Republican. That must play a part in what committees you end up on. Why well, certainly it does. There are, there are some House rules that somewhat give you a choice, at least on the first committee, uh, the, the one that's first in your priority list. But essentially, other than that, it's pretty much what the speaker wants to do. And certainly, certainly there is a partisanship involved. Does the speaker determine what committee the bills will go to? He does. So, for instance, you're on the education committee, so it would be all education matters that go to your committee. Would there be anything else you're seeing? 
you would presume it would be all education related bills and in in that particular committee i don't think i've seen anything other than bills that would at least be at least tangentially related to education what about some of the other proposed legislation has it come to a committee you serve on and you go why is this here why are we considering this one it hasn't in the last seven years since the uh, well, particularly the last four years or the last three sessions and i'll include the upcoming session in january we've gotten used to it we know bills go wherever the speaker wants to send them for whatever reason he wants to send them some bills that he might think are a little bit speculative he would have the opportunity to send it to a quote-unquote friendly committee chairman or slash committee uh that's what happens up there now the committee system doesn't work like it used to have you enjoyed your time as a legislator do you find it fulfilling do you feel like you're serving mississippians in a positive way i've enjoyed it in a lot of ways i certainly feel like i am serving the people that elected me out of district 91 i believe that uh what i have done up there follows along with the majority uh, opinions in my district although i don't necessarily found every vote I make on that premise. What piece of legislation that has passed that you've been part of are you most proud of? Well, that's a hard one. There are several things that passed uh, earlier when I were up when I was up there that came about, but I, the one that I was specifically responsible for, and you have to understand that I'm a lawyer. I do a lot of criminal defense work. I've been a public defender in Jefferson Davis and Lawrence counties, which are two counties in my representative district also. I was a public defender in those two counties for 25 years or so. There was a bill back in my first uh, term, and I'm serving out my third term now. There was a bill back in my first term that required that Department of Public Safety could not spend any of their money that was appropriated to them until they actually came up with a uh, workable uh, forensic pathology department under the the Department of Public Safety. Uh, That was instigated by me, uh, put forward in the House by me, and it came to fruition. It was voted in. And now we have, although very overworked still, we have a good forensic pathology department in the uh, Department of Public Safety. And the reason that's important, it goes back to what I've done for a living as a public defender. I want people such as forensic pathologists who are obviously uh, professional medical doctors, I want people up there that are capable of making correct rulings on why someone died that got sent to the Department of Public Safety into the crime lab to decide whether or not a crime has been committed. Uh, We did not have that prior to the present setup. I'm very proud of that bill, although it's probably one that the vast general public wouldn't even have any notice, wouldn't even know about. Let me ask you finally, what specifically would you like to see come up and pass in this upcoming legislative session? Oh, that's easy for me, Medicaid expansion, but that's uh, the proverbial snowball there. All right. 
We'll leave it at that. Representative Bob Evans is a Democrat from Monticello, and he represents District 91. Bob, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Enjoyed it. Coming up in this week's book club, Let the People See takes a look at Emmett Till's murder from a new perspective. But first, a Southern Remedy Health Minute. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute. Here there's a listener from Illinois. Does sunblock prevent absorption of vitamin D, and how much sun do we need to get a reasonable dose of vitamin D? I'm glad they said they were from Illinois because that's a part of this that we need to address. So, yes, vitamin D, most of us know vitamin D is important to good bone health. There are some other things that it it contributes to. Actually, we know a lot more and are treating vitamin D more aggressively because of other things. But bone health is the one that we think about first and foremost. So your body generally produces a precursor to vitamin D after you absorb it in your diet and then your kidneys help out with the formation of that. The cells in your skin can produce the final result of vitamin D. So you do need some sunlight to do that. It doesn't take much, usually, you know, 10-15 minutes tops. Sunblock has been a source of argument between The endocrinologists, those are the people who treat uh, hormonal type, uh, the gland issues in the body, and vitamin D sort of lumped in there with that. There's a lot of conjecture whether or not the overuse of sunscreens is contributing to lower vitamin D levels. And there is direct evidence that it does limit your absorption of those UV rays that can help in the production of vitamin D in your body. And it is to the second question, you know, certainly I wouldn't advocate anybody just to do without sunscreen so they can get their vitamin D up. But certainly if you have a lot more pigment in your skin, too, so if you're African-American or if you have darker skin color, you're more likely to have less vitamin D when tested for that. But I would I would wear sunscreen to prevent skin cancers. If you're in a northern latitude like Illinois, north of here, you're going to get less of that vitamin D just because of the the angle of the sun's rays when it reaches you. So that is a little bit of a difference. Those closer to the equator are going to have more sun exposure. And, you know, that's just something to keep in mind. But if you have concerns about that, I would just get with your physician to check and see, particularly if you have osteoporosis, they should be checking for that, or osteopenia, which is just thinning of the bones. You should get them to check those levels and make sure that you're having an an adequate supply of vitamin D. For more health tips and medical information, listen to Southern Remedy each weekday morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. AutoCorrect was created so folks in Mississippi would have a place to call or write in to get their automotive questions answered. We also try to give some educational information along the way. Next show's about creating some good driving habits for the new year. AutoCorrect, today at 10 a.m. on MPB Think Radio and on the Internet at mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. In the past few years, several books about Emmett Till have been released. They've each recounted the kidnapping and gruesome murder of the black 14-year-old from Chicago visiting family in Mississippi. The crime that cost the young Till his life 
supposedly whistling at a white woman. Elliot Gorn has authored the latest book about Emmett Till, Let the People See. While focusing on the trial of Till's accused killers, Gorn's book views the tragedy through the eyes of those in the North. He tells us that a renewed interest in Till motivated him to delve deeper. Because the Emmett Till story is so present to us today, um, people forget that before Eyes on the Prize in 1987, the story had been all but forgotten by white people in America. African Americans remembered it. They carried it into the Civil Rights Movement. They told it in their families to their children as a cautionary tale. But before 1987, uh, most whites had virtually forgotten the story. You say you bring a perspective from the Chicago area, and I'd like to focus on that. Uh, of course, Emmett Till being from Chicago, his mother having the open casket, which propelled this story, this horrible crime, into the civil rights movement, propelling the whole movement itself. So what can you tell us about the reception in Chicago? A few things to say. First of all, the idea that there's a connection between Chicago or the Great Lakes states or the North and Mississippi and the South is is nothing new. Um, the the great migration that we talk about of African Americans North didn't just take place early in the century. It continued through the Second World War, past the Second World War. The the Till family had all come from the Deep South. Mamie Till Bradley, she she was brought as a baby, as a child, at age two from Mississippi to the north because there were jobs, there was opportunity, there was a little more freedom, the possibility of voting, a little better schools and longer school terms for kids. So it's, it's, a, it's a connected story that way to begin with. When Emmett Till's body was brought back to Chicago after the murder, and Mamie Till Bradley made the decision to have an open coffin to let photographers photograph him, his just destroyed face, and and publish those photographs in Jet. They were published. They were not published in the mainstream American press. They were published in the black press, in the in Jet magazine, the Chicago Defender, and there was just an explosion of grief, anger. At least a hundred thousand people show up for the funeral on the south side of Chicago, mostly almost all African Americans. It was a reminder of what they had left, what they hoped to change in America. Uh, the life they hoped to be able to lead. It was just a, such a, an important moment in African-American history. You said two publications published those photos initially, and 100,000 people showed up. Word of mouth had to play a part in that. Oh, yes, certainly. I, I, I still know people in Chicago who talk about it, who remember the incident so clearly. And yes, people spoke to each other and let each other know about it. It was a uh, sudden, important, unifying moment. And, and again, not just in Chicago, and it wasn't just the Defender and Jet, other black newspapers throughout America. And there was, there was a very active black press back then. The Amsterdam News in New York, the Baltimore Afro-American, on and on, uh, every big city, even actually Jackson, had the very accommodationist Jackson advocate. The Defender, though, was the closest thing to a national newspaper, brought south by Pullman Porters, distributed all the way down to Mississippi. Very, very popular publication. So that that was part of it, too. And yes, word of mouth, and especially word of mouth later in families. Again, parents telling their children, repeating the story. We know that now more strongly than we ever did from memoirs and so on. In Mississippi, his story is still very much of the present. 
We've spoken with his cousin, who was in the room with him when he was taken. So it isn't distant history by any means. How do you think his story resonates today? Does it? It's a very, very important story today, and increasingly so. This is the, the interesting thing. Again, you can do engrams at Google and see the increasing numbers of times that the name Emmett Till appears in print. Pretty much steady increase, especially since Eyes on the Prize. It's relevant today. I mean, look, you begin with, say, Ferguson and Trayvon Martin. Almost as soon as that terrible murder took place, there are photoshopped images on the web of Trayvon Martin and Emmett Till arm in arm. And the same with Michael Brown and the same with Laquan McDonald. Every time these murders take place, newspaper stories so often begin the first paragraph or two talking about Emmett Till and invoking the past with the present. So just, just as a little example like that, it, it's always there. The idea that these are not the same kind of killings, but the justice system at some stage failed terribly, committed atrocity rather than finding justice. Elliot Gorn is the author of Let the People See, the story of Emmett Till. Elliot, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts, and at 10, Autocorrect. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. If you missed part of the show today, find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education with 100% online master's or specialist degrees in fields like teaching, leadership, higher education, and more. More information at rebelteacher.com.